You are now listening to the August 11th broadcast of Unity in Christ. Today's topics are the history of the Biblio, the sex spiral, and grace upon grace. We will begin with the history of the Biblio. This program will examine how the Bible was recorded, inspect the archaeological evidence, as well as the different languages it has been translated into. Hey listeners, I'm Jisoo Kang from the History of the Biblia. The last few times we talked about the first language the Bible was written in, the people who recorded the Bible, as well as the Bible's accuracy as related to archaeological evidence. We learned that although the Bible has been recorded and preserved by human hands, its existence is ultimately due to God's planning and guidance. It is through His guidance that we can enjoy the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. How can we be sure that these 66 books are the right ones? When I first heard that people in a religious conference selected the composition of the Bible, I questioned how far we could trust in their human choices. I'm sure many of you have similar doubts and questions. So today we will look at the biblical canon selection process in order to answer these questions. First, let's look at the definition of the word canon. The etymology of the word canon traces to the Greek word for measuring stick. This measuring stick was the standard for determining whether something was straight or crooked. Thus, canon referring to the Bible signals a standardized, authoritative text. If a book is described as being a canon, that book has been authorized by God. It wasn't that the book was randomly canonized, but that book has been used and accepted as authoritative and later canonized. It is widely known that the 39 books of the Old Testament were canonized in 90 AD at the Council of Jamnia. But before the Council's decision, these 39 books were already accepted in Israel society as canonical. The Old Testament contains a long history from creation to Israel's return from captivity in Babylon. The Old Testament has many accounts of prophets or people who have received God's message reading and teaching the Israelites' Judaic law. There was a time that Moses personally received the law from God and instructed the high priest to teach the people. Another time, Moses preached for the last time before his death in front of the Israelites. And then again, there was a time King Josiah read legal texts before the Israelites, then prayed for forgiveness of sins. And after their return from Babylon, the Bible records that Ezra read the legal texts before the Israelites for all the days of the Feast of Tabernacles. As seen through these examples, the Word of God wasn't a personal possession that someone just decided to canonize. The Word of God was taught to and read by everyone in the Israeli community. Not only this, there were many times in the Bible when after a reading of the Word of God, the population as a whole fasted, asked for forgiveness of sins, and returned to God in a renewal of spirit. Isn't it obvious that only the canons, the texts inspired by God, could bring about such a widespread spiritual transformation? If God wasn't at work, how could Israel as a whole experience such change? Israel always recorded, taught, and learned from the times God moved in their lives. And they only accepted as canons those texts that accurately recorded those moments. 
During the 400 years between the end of the book of Malachi and before the New Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament were widely accepted and used. But a closer look at the Judaic Old Testament revealed that the order of the text is slightly different than the Christian arrangement. The content and makeup is the same, but the order varies. The Jewish people divided the Old Testament into three parts. The first part is called the Torah. The Torah, or the five books that make up the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are the books that record Mosaic law. This order doesn't vary from the Christian Bible. Their second part is called the Nevi'im, and this groups the prophetic books. Included in this section are the books Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 books of the Minor Prophets. Their third section is called Ketuvim, and this includes books of divine inspiration such as Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. To sum up, the Jewish people divided the Old Testament into the Instruction, Prophetic, and Holy Writings section. And these sections were called the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. Put together, these sections are called Tanakh, as a widely used Jewish acronym of the three sections. Jesus, in the New Testament, knew the Old Testament in the Tanakh order. Let's read Luke chapter 24, verse 44. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus said this to his disciples after he came back from the dead. The law of Moses refers to the Torah. The prophets refer to the Nevi'im, and the Psalms refer to the Ketuvim. Jesus described the Old Testament in the Tanakh order. And in Luke chapter 11, verses 50 to 51, Jesus said, Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Abel was the first martyr who appeared in the book of Genesis, and Zechariah was a martyr that appeared in Second Chronicles. Drawing from before, Genesis was the first book of the Tanakh, and Chronicles was the last book. This proves that Jewish people were using the 39 books of the Old Testament in the Tanakh order in New Testament times, and that Jesus used this arrangement as well. What better evidence could there be? If Jesus accepted the 39 books of the Old Testament as the authoritative word of God, we have no reason to doubt their eligibility as canons. Thus, we accept the 39 books as the word of God and we do not accept other books as part of the Old Testament. How about you? Aren't you more and more thankful the more you know? The Old Testament is a credible, Jesus-tested Word of God, and it was given to us. I pray that we can accept and take in this credible Word of God through faith. Today, we looked at the canonization of the Old Testament. Next time, we'll look at the canonization of the New Testament. For now, goodbye.
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth without the shock value and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. Back on January, we started this teaching series called The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. It's a series that I taught to a men's group here in Phoenix last fall. Sex Spiral is a set of awareness triggers that explain the location as to where you are inside this habit, this bondage, this addiction to pornography. And make no doubt about it, pornography is a series of predictable habits that we've created for ourselves. That's the bad news, that we don't realize it. The good news is that as you listen, as you review, and as you start applying this material to your life, you, by God's grace, man, you're, you're going to break free from the bondage of porn. Jesus Christ did not die for your sin and rise from the dead for you to remain an addicted Christian. He just didn't. So today, we're going to look at the last trigger inside the sex spiral. It's called hopelessness. And obviously, that's a, a horrible place to be. And I pray that you never have to go there. I pray that no one in your family ever has to go there. Unfortunately, I did. And today, you're going to hear part of my own personal story, a story of how the bondage to pornography almost literally killed me. Well, you know, and there's power in stories, and that's why I'm sharing mine with you. I, I pray that you learn from it. I pray that you learn a lot from it uh, and that you don't choose to, to make the same mistakes that I did. So let's get started with today's lesson. It's titled, How Porn Almost Killed Me. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his commandments, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong. But walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. And then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a, a man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart we seek you, Lord God. Let us not wander from your commandments. We stored up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Continue tonight to teach us your statutes. And with my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Psalm 119. 
Well, tonight, gentlemen, we are talking about hopelessness. Um, This is trigger number 12. And tonight I'm going to share my story of hopelessness. A lot of you guys have heard bits and pieces of this, but I, I share it to give you encouragement. I really do. You know, I've gone through this spiral, this cycle, I don't know how many times. Over 20 years of my life, not even knowing I was doing it, right? And um, so even though the trigger is of hopelessness, even though my story sucks, it's a story of hope. It's a story that prayerfully that you guys can see my life as an example. You don't have to stay where you currently are. Things will change. God will change you. This stuff is real. He delivers on his promises, guys. He absolutely does. So back in 2001 and 2002, I was living in Austin, Texas, and 25 years of sexual sin had finally caught up with me. I had divorced my wife, and I left her for another woman, and I was already cheating on this other woman. During that divorce, I filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. I forced my wife to do the same, my first wife, to do the same. This other woman left her husband and her kids for me. She had a 13, 14-year-old boy and also a 45-year-old boy. She left her whole family to come and live with me. We were living in a rented home, and I, at that point in my life, I just couldn't save my life to keep a job. My depression was so bad that I didn't want to stay awake. All I could do was sleep. I had, in the 18 months that I lived in Austin, Texas, I had nine jobs. I literally was fired from a job every other month. And I couldn't stand this woman that I was obsessed with. So what do you do when you can't stand someone? Well, you marry them, right? I mean, that's the right thing to do. Rational? Yeah. (laughs) Completely rational, right? I mean, all we had in common was sex. That was it. And as you look at Romans 1, especially the end, 22 through 26, where God's telling us, I'm going to give you over to your lust. That's exactly what happened in my life. God gave me over to my own lust. He basically said, you want this? Is this what you want? Well, here you go. Let's see how this works out for you. I was going through this cycle, this spiral, half a dozen times a day at this point. So God delivered on his promises, as he always does. He gave me up to my lust. Basically, he gave me up to my dishonorable passions, my debased mind. All that's in Romans 1. And then one day I woke up from one of my many naps throughout the day. I was supposed to be working, but I couldn't stay awake. And I decided that the pain of my life was just too great. I realized, you know what? This is what I get. I'm the end result of my decisions. I realized once again what an effing loser I was. I saw how many people I hurt and and was still hurting. I saw that I was completely unable to take care of myself, let alone a woman who was not even a woman to me. She was a personal sex toy. I had no hope. I was stuck in this trigger right here. I made the decision to kill myself. After all, I've been thinking about it for mm, about a year, specifically. 
I, I really thought about in that past year, I, I thought about two things, either more sex or killing myself because the sex would make me at least feel me, allow me to feel a little bit better momentarily to get through the pain. You know, Romans 6.23 talks about the wages of sin is death, right? When you look at the, the, first, uh, the first page of, the, of your spiral there, that's where all of this stuff leads you. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So what's a wage? It's payment for something that I've done, that you've done. And what I did for over 20 years of my life was sin against the holy God. And my wages, which is what I rightfully deserved as a payment for my sin, was death. There's no way around it. It was the, the tsunami wave that we talked about. It finally hit my shoreline. And God had delivered on His promises. Pastor James McDonald says, When we choose to sin, we choose to suffer. There's a choice there. There's no way around it. Sin and suffering are two sides of the same coin. And at this moment in my life, I was receiving all of those wages at one time. And I can't take the pain and the, and the shame any longer. And my, my life moved into despair. I had no hope. I'm done. I'm finished. So I knew where the gun was, but the moment that I thought that, I hear this question run through my head. So, you're going to carry on the family tradition. Your grandfather shot himself, your father drank himself to death, and, and now it's your turn to be a coward. I thought, man, what kind of question is that? Got up, got up from the nap, went back to work. I'll never forget it. I was working for a bug company at the time, pest control company. As a salesman, and whenever you, you took off your, your belt, you had a flashlight and you had all this stuff to it. So when you took off your belt, it just went boom like that. And I remember getting up from my nap and trying to put that back on, putting my uniform back on. So I went back to work. But here's the thing, guys. I was completely oblivious to who even asked me the question because I didn't know God at that point. Now, it took me another 6 to 12 months to actually hit rock bottom, but that was definitely a pivotal point in my journey towards God. So here's a key point for tonight. You don't have a worksheet, but it's this idea that guilt, your guilt and shame without a solution, it leads to this. It leads to hopelessness. If there's no solution to where you're headed, your guilt and your shame with no solution leads to hopelessness. The choice to not trust leads to bondage and hopelessness. You know, when we don't learn to trust in what Jesus did for us on the cross, we will always continue to remain in this spiral. As followers of Christ, we believe His substitutionary atonement, basically Jesus in my place, is the only hope for a fallen humanity. Our guilt without a solution leads to hopelessness. The choice to not trust leads to hopelessness. Man, this is, this is so big for us to grasp. The choice to, to not trust in God, the choice to not trust in other godly people leads to hopelessness. Something must be done with our guilt and our shame.
And I can either choose to trust in myself and my own abilities, or I can choose to finally trust in God. So if I choose to uh, trust in myself, I will eventually lose hope. If there's no solution to my guilt, we end up just trading one addiction for another. And the ironic thing here when we do this is that I actually believe that I'm getting better because I'm moving away from the original addiction and I think I'm becoming healthy and whole, but I'm not because trading alcohol for cigarettes or porn for food, that's not getting better. That's not getting healthier. That's just moving away. That's just trading one for the other. And the reason that we're not getting better is because we haven't found the solution that's found in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not talking about salvation, the accepting of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What I'm talking about here is being free from the bondage of pornography and being free in Jesus Christ. Galatians 5.1 reads, It is for freedom that Jesus Christ has set you free. It's for freedom. Once again, Jesus didn't do what he did for us as the church to remain addicted to pornography or, or to remain addicted to busyness or control or our iPhones. We're free. So the question is, are you free? Are you free in Jesus Christ? Are you free enough to give your phone Maybe your email account, your your browsing history to your spouse. And if you're not married, are you willing to, to give those things over to a friend? Or is this something that you would find that they're going to find that's going to cause, you know, great shame in your life? And I, and I just want to encourage you, man. It doesn't have to be that way. I lived my life for two decades doing that stuff, always hiding, always scheming. And it doesn't have to be that way. This can be a new day for you because you can choose to protect yourself. You can do something different. You can choose to protect your family from any more shame. And it starts with your digital devices. Thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. If you're in Phoenix, I want to invite you to our weekly grace group. It's a community group. It's a group that focuses on healthy sexuality, and it's for men and women, single, divorced, husbands and wives, separated together. It doesn't matter. Everybody is welcome, and you're invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday, 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church. We're in building A, room 301. You can follow me on Twitter if you're a Twitter person. I'm at Purity Pastor. You can email me your questions. I would love to respond to those questions. You can go to DustinDanielsRadio.com and, uh, and send those in. 1 Corinthians 4.20, it reads, The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. And that's what this is all about, guys. Ladies, it's, it's living in the freedom of God's power. And the power, where does that power come from? It comes from the very name and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I love you. Thank you for listening.
I can't even walk a straight line And every time you look at me I'm spinning like an autumn leaf Bound to hit bottom sometime Where would I be without someone to save me? Someone who won't let me fall Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Ordinances, based on Acts chapter 2. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. 
you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Acts chapter 2. Good to be together as a church around the word. We're looking today at the seventh of 12 biblical traits of a church. And just remember our purpose in this. So as followers of Christ join together in the church, we don't want to do church our own way which we are prone to do according to what's popular in our culture. We want to do church God's way, according to God's word, for his glory and for our good. So over these past weeks, we've seen how God has designed for every follower of Christ to commit his or her life to a church where the Bible's taught, the gospel's proclaimed, where discipleship is happening, where you're praying together, seeking the Lord, not just individually, but together where you're pooling your resources, giving together. All of that leads to the seventh trait we're going to see today, biblical ordinances. Now, kind of like church membership, that topic may not sound particularly thrilling to you. I don't know how many of you hear that and immediately think, yes, like biblical ordinances. This is going to be awesome. So many of you probably think, what in the world are biblical ordinances? And why in the world do they matter for my life? And, but back to biblical ordinances, my aim in the next few minutes is to show you two biblical ordinances that God has given to the church. And I want to show you how they are extremely significant for your life and for our life together in the church. We got a ton to cover this morning, so I'll go ahead and warn you. We are about to go secret church speed. If you've not been to secret church, just think open mouth, insert fire hydrant. So here we go. What in the world is an ordinance? And basically that word means a prescribed practice. So it's an activity that God has told us to do together as a church. Not just individually, but when we come together. And two ordinances we're going to dive into in the Bible today. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. So I want to show you to them in Scripture. Then I want to show you what this means for your life. If you have not been baptized as a follower of Christ then today I'm going to encourage you to do that as soon as possible. This is a practice. I'm going to show you that Jesus prescribes. So if you are a follower of Christ who has not been baptized, then you are directly disobeying God. And then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today at all of our campuses. But before we do, I want to make sure we understand what we're doing because there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the Lord's Supper means. And just to give you a heads up, we're about to see how the Bible warns that if you participate in the Lord's Supper wrongly, God may take your life. I would say that's pretty sufficient reason to pay attention today. So let's start with Acts chapter 2. This is the start of the church in the New Testament. Jesus has died on a cross. He's risen from the grave. He has ascended into heaven Beginning of Acts chapter 2, which we looked at a few weeks ago when we were looking at prayer, Jesus sent his Holy Spirit upon his people. They start proclaiming the gospel. That's where we pick up in verse 36. This is the end of the first Christian sermon. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, crowds, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So, follow this. As soon as these first Christians put their faith in Christ, they were baptized. And then the Bible says, these new believers in the church of Jerusalem immediately devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. And most biblical scholars believe that that reference to the breaking of bread is a reference to the Lord's Supper, which was a regular part of the church's gathering. So I'm going to point you to a ton of different places in the Bible today that we won't have time to turn to. So you might want to make notes. We'll put some of them on the screen. But I want to show you the basics of what the Bible teaches about these two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper that we see from the very beginning of the church. So we'll start with baptism. What is baptism? Baptism is a public demonstration of our initial identification with Christ and his church. And every word there matters. It's a public act. It's not something you do alone. It's an initial act. Notice how baptism in the Bible was actually part of this initial invitation to follow Christ. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Christ. So these new believers were baptized immediately. In the name of Christ, that's a phrase we see again in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, points to identification with Christ and the church. So don't miss this. The church, in its essence, is the community of men and women who are identified with the name of Jesus, the life of Christ. So baptism is our identification with the church. So let's dive into five quick questions about baptism. Why, what, how, who, and when? So first, why should I be baptized? And the Bible gives three answers to that question. First, we should be baptized to follow the example of Christ. So let me read to you here, it'll be on the screen, from Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. So this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The Bible says Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by John. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now we learn earlier in Matthew chapter three, that baptism is a picture of repentance, of turning from sin. And Jesus, of course, was sinless. He had no sin that he needed to repent of. But what he's doing here is giving an example to us of righteousness to all who would follow him. Jesus is identifying with all people who will repent of their sin and trust in him. See the gravity of grace and humility here that Jesus identifies with sinners like you and me, even though he has no sin. Just set an example for us. Then second, we should be baptized to obey the command of Christ. So Jesus' ministry starts here in Matthew chapter 3. Think about where it ends in Matthew chapter 28. The very end of this book, and the verses that we quote to one another at the end of each of our gatherings, Jesus says in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That command from Christ is why we see everyone puts their faith in Christ in the book of Acts is being baptized, without exception. So you put this together. Matthew 28, what we talk about around here all the time, how 
every disciple of Jesus in the church has been commanded to make disciples of Jesus. We are disciple makers. That's what Jesus has called every one of us to do. So how can you carry out that command to share the gospel and lead other people to be baptized if you are not willing to be baptized yourself? Don't miss this. Baptism is an obedience issue for every follower of Christ, for the newest follower of Christ, which is why I said earlier that the Bible clearly teaches that if you are a follower of Christ and have not been baptized, then you are disobeying God. We're baptized to follow the example of Christ, to command, obey the command of Christ, and then third, to unite with the body of Christ. Let me show this to you on the screen in Ephesians chapter four, verse four through six. Paul writes there to the church at Ephesus and he says, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You've seen the language there, how baptism is one of these One of the things that unites us together in the church, it's foundational. Like, it makes no sense to be in the church but not baptized. An unbaptized member or part of the church is like an oxymoron in Scripture. It's like jumbo shrimp. Microsoft works. (laughs) Sorry, I shouldn't have gone there. But the point is, unbaptized church member makes no sense. Baptism is a prescribed practice for uniting together in the church. So it unites us. And It would contradict, it would mar our unity in the church to say, think about it, we have one Lord, one faith, not really baptism. Like we're not all baptized. See how important this is? One Lord, one faith, biblical church. So we talk about baptism. This is why we should be baptized, to follow the example of Christ, to obey the command of Christ, and to unite with the body of Christ. Which leads to our second question, what is the meaning of baptism? And here's what the Bible teaches. First, baptism is a celebration of the grace of Christ. This is Romans 6. I want to say loud and clearly today, I want you to hear loud and clear today, that baptism is not necessary for salvation. Specifically, justification before God, forgive us of your sins. Baptism is absolutely an important part of our relationship with Christ. It's one of the first things we're supposed to do in our relationship with Christ, what we're seeing here. But baptism is not necessary to be made right before God. Some people teach this. Catholicism officially teaches this, that you are justified before God by faith and through baptism and other works. That's not what the Bible teaches. As one of many examples, a simple look at the thief on the cross makes this plain. He was not baptized, but he was absolutely with Jesus in paradise when he died. Baptism is not earning God's grace in salvation. That would actually undercut God's grace in salvation. It's not grace if you earn it. We are saved from our sin by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And baptism is a physical celebration of that internal spiritual transformation. So think Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. So here's the picture. And it's what Paul talks about right before that in Romans chapter five. Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for us in our sin. Then he rose from the grave as our savior. And baptism is a celebration of that reality applied to our hearts. When someone is baptized, they are not being made right before God. They are celebrating the reality that they are right before God through faith in Jesus. Baptism is a celebration of the grace of Christ and It's an illustration of the gospel of Christ. Romans 6 teaches that baptism is a picture. And it is a glorious picture. 
When we go into the water, we show our identification with the death of Christ for our sins. We illustrate how we are no longer slaves to sin and the penalty of sin, eternal death. We're dead to sin. And then we don't stay underwater very long for a variety of reasons, namely because Jesus didn't stay in the grave very long. When we come up out of the water, we show our identification with the resurrection of Christ. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we have been raised to walk in an entirely new life. This is what baptism illustrates, and it is glorious. Which leads to the last reality here. Baptism is a celebration of grace. It's an illustration of the gospel, and it's a declaration of the glory of Christ, which is why we love celebrating baptism in the church, because every time somebody else is baptized, we remember that we are united together in Jesus' death and resurrection. We proclaim to one another that Jesus has conquered sin and death, and we have new life in him. This is what baptism means. It's a celebration of the grace of Christ. It's an illustration of the gospel and a declaration of his glory, which leads to the third question. How should I be baptized? This is where we just want to take an honest look at scripture and ask, okay, what does the Bible teach? And I say that humbly. I'm not saying that some of my heroes of the faith in Christian history ignored scripture. Almost all biblical scholars would agree that the dominant term for baptism, baptizo, in the New Testament literally means to immerse or submerge or dunk. This is how John got his name, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, John the Dunker. And if you look at scripture just on a a few different levels, look at the precedent of Christ. Jesus came up out of the water. He was not sprinkled with it. It was not poured over him. He was immersed in it. You look at the pattern of early church leaders. Think Acts 8 with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip didn't say, let me go get some water and come back up and baptize you. He went down into and came up out of the water with this Ethiopian believer. Two more questions. One, who should be baptized? The Bible teaches that everyone who has been born again should be baptized. And the key word there is again, not just born. So this is very different from what Catholicism teaches on so many levels, including how baptism relates to salvation. But this is also different what they might say about baptism, who believe the same gospel that we do, yet they baptize infants soon after birth. But you think about all that we see in the Bible about baptism, how this is an act of obedience to the command of Christ, uniting with the body of Christ, celebrating the grace of Christ, identifying with Christ and his church. None of these things are possible without faith in Christ. And infants cannot have that faith. That faith comes when we are born again, when we become followers of Christ, when we confess our need for God's grace in our lives and place our faith in Jesus. Now that is not intended in any way to minimize the significance of parents saying, in faith, I want to commit my child and home to raising our child to know and love Christ. That's why, why we do parent dedications, but that is very different from what the Bible teaches about baptism. And then last question, when should I be baptized? And I would submit the answer the Bible gives is twofold. One, when should you be baptized? As soon as you trust in Christ for salvation. So in Acts, believers were normally baptized immediately. I could show you verses in Acts 2, 8, 9, 10, 11, 16, 18, and 22. Where this is constantly happening. As people come to Christ, they are baptized. So this is not something that a Christian grows into. This is something you do as soon as you trust in Christ for salvation. And only then. So it's not something you do again and again and again. Once you're baptized as a believer in Christ, you don't get baptized again. 
The Bible knows nothing of rebaptism. Baptism is a believer's initial identification with Christ. It only happens after you follow Christ. And it happens once, as soon as you can, after you trust in Christ for salvation. He said, well, I thought you were gonna add something second here. And I would, and here's why. As soon as you can best publicly proclaim your salvation. So remember, baptism is a public demonstration of your initial identification with Christ and his church. So you don't come to Christ and then just find the quickest pool or bathtub you can and go do this. You come to the church and you say, I want to be baptized. We then walk through a process with you designed to make sure you're clear on what baptism means. The last thing we want to do is baptize anyone who thinks this is going to save them from their sins or who just wants to please this or that person. So we'll walk through that process so that you can, as soon as possible, publicly proclaim your salvation. Now, with all of that said, I know there are many followers of Christ around this room, other campuses right now, who have not been baptized. You're a follower of Christ and you've not been baptized for all sorts of reasons. I don't presume to know what every single one of those reasons is. I can talk with a lot of people about what those reasons are. I would just submit today that none of those reasons outweighs what we have just seen in God's word. This is at the core, amidst all those reasons, an obedience issue. God is calling you to be baptized, to publicly declare that you belong to Jesus. And my hope is that you hear that and think, okay, yes, this is serious. But then you don't think, okay, I'll do it because I have to. But you'll see the beauty here. So brothers and sisters, in a much deeper way, just think about it. The God of the universe has pursued you with passion. A passion that drove his son to die for all your sins. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, God has forgiven you of all your sin, brought you into a relationship with him, united your life with himself. He's given the church an ordinance, a practice, a picture that tells the world, you belong to Jesus. And when you are baptized, you celebrate this grace that God has freely given you. You illustrate the gospel that is more precious than anything else on this planet. And you proclaim to the world that Jesus is God, he is good, and he will bring new life to anyone who trusts in him. Why would any follower of Christ not want to say, I belong to Jesus? So follow this. The Lord's Supper is different. It's not something we do once, not just initial. The Lord's Supper is something we do over and over and over again. It's continual. Think about it this way, and I'm kind of mixing analogies here, but if baptism is like a wedding ceremony that celebrates initial identification with Christ, then the Lord's Supper would be like anniversary celebrations where we renew our vows continually before God. And if you ask any wife if it's important that her husband remembers their anniversary, you will realize, okay, maybe something we should not neglect this. Did you know the Lord's Supper is the only act of worship in the New Testament we have been given specific instructions for? By the way, go ahead and turn with me over. If you have your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I want you to read this one with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So it's called communion. It's called the Lord's table. It's called the breaking of bread, what we saw in Acts 2.42. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Luke chapter 22, verse 14 to 23 is where we see Jesus celebrate this meal with his disciples before he goes to the cross. Then, as we've seen in Acts, that meal is practiced 
continually by the early church and then Paul reminds the church of its importance in 1 Corinthians. So let me read specifically from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Follow this. Paul writes, to the church at Corinth, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So similar questions. One, who should participate in the Lord's Supper? And the Bible teaches that followers of Christ share in the life of Christ as they partake of the Lord's Supper. Followers of Christ. So Jesus shared that meal in Luke 22 with his followers in 1 Corinthians, this is a letter to the church at Corinth. Every time we see the Lord's Supper in the New Testament, it only involves followers of Christ. And followers is the key word there. We'll see in a minute, even if you call yourself a Christian, but you are deliberately disobeying Christ in your life, should not partake of the Lord's Supper. But that doesn't mean you have to like leave the room. No, those who are not followers of Christ see the love of Christ as they watch the Lord's Supper. So in just a minute, when followers of Christ here at other campuses are taking the Lord's Supper, which I'll explain the meaning of, we want you to see the love of Christ for you. Our aim is not to be inhospitable. Our aim is to have a celebration of God's love that might open your eyes to the depth of God's love for you. Our prayer is today, like I've prayed for this today, that even as we're talking about baptism and celebrating the Lord's Supper, that you might see and realize in your own heart the depth of God's love for you, that Jesus has died on the cross for your sins, that you can have forgiveness of all your sins, eternal life with God, relationship with God through faith in Christ, that as we talk baptism, celebrate the Lord's Supper, you would see that reality and you would want it in your own heart. So we are so thankful you are here in this gathering of the church, which leads to the next question, where should we have the Lord's Supper? And the only biblical requirement is the gathering of the church. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if we were to study it more in depth, four different times Paul talks about the church coming together. In fact, you look, verse 29, when Paul says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So the Lord's Supper is not something we do alone, privately. It's something we do publicly, together. Again, there's exceptions to this. If, if someone is bedridden and they're not able to come to church or in a circumstance where they're not able to gather together within the church, then there's pictures of the church going to brothers and sisters like this and celebrating the Lord's Supper. But the normal practice is the gathering of the church, which leads to the next question. When should we have the Lord's Supper? And on that question, Scripture doesn't give an explicit answer. New Testament doesn't say do it at these intervals. The Bible certainly says here in 1 Corinthians 11, as often as you drink this cup and as often as you eat this bread... So I think we're on safe ground when we see the early church, Acts 2.42, continually devoting themselves to this. See this picture from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Scripture is calling us, commanding us to observe it often. And Jesus commands us to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So like baptism, this is an obedience issue as well. 
And it was the ongoing practice, ordinance of Christ followers in the first century. So we observe it often, which then leads some people to ask, question, what about weekly? Some of you may come from backgrounds where the Lord's Supper was celebrated weekly. Though scripture doesn't command this, we have a possible hint at it in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. That's a verse that seems to imply that the disciples in Troas were observing the Lord's Supper weekly. Now, some of you who have not come from backgrounds where the Lord's Supper was celebrated weekly may think, doesn't it just become routine, like not quite as special if you do it that often? And sure, I guess that could be a danger, but if we were going to use that rationale, should we only sing once a month? Pray once a month? Study the Bible once a month because we want it to be special? Certainly not according to Scripture. We're supposed to gather together often, and as the only act of worship for which we have prescribed instructions, it should be central. The Lord's Supper should be a central component in our worship, and we should anticipate it, not as a special event every once in a while, but as a regular component of our continual identification with Christ and his church in worship. And the reason for that leads to the final two questions. So one, what is the meaning of the Lord's Supper? And the answer to that question takes us to something extremely important, a traditional misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper as a change of substance that results in salvation. So the big theological term for this is transubstantiation, which is the official. And communion now has huge ramifications for salvation. Follow this with me. I want you to see why this is so important. To receive communion is to receive Christ himself who has offered himself for us. And here's what happens. When you take communion, I quote, communion with the body and blood of Christ increases one's union with the Lord, forgives his venial sins, and preserves him from grave sins. Did you catch that? Forgives his sins. Take the meal, receive Christ, and obtain forgiveness. And this is why, to quote from one more place, as sacrifice, the Eucharist, the Mass, is offered in reparation for the sins of the living and the dead, and to obtain spiritual or temporal benefits from God. So the reason I quote from these places, it's just to make clear that this is so much more than just a theological discussion of big words like transubstantiation. How you view the Lord's Supper, much like baptism, is key to a biblical understanding of the gospel and salvation. If the Lord's Supper, or baptism for that matter, is a means we actually receive Christ or experience salvation, if they are necessary for salvation, then we are fundamentally altering the gospel. And ladies and gentlemen, we are not saved by anything we do. We are saved by the grace of God alone, through faith in Christ alone, which means there is much at stake in whether or not someone believes these elements actually become the body and blood of Christ. Traditional misunderstanding sees the Lord's Supper as a change of substance that results in salvation. A biblical understanding of the Lord's Supper is a symbolic meal that reflects salvation. So when Jesus says, this is my body, the verb he uses there often means represents. When he said this to his disciples, his body was still in person in front of them. His blood was still in his veins. There is nothing in scripture to point us to this actually becoming his body and his blood in such a way that when we receive Christ, we have forgiveness through eating and drinking the Lord's Supper we're not careful in an attempt to make clear that Christ is not physically present in the bread and the cup in that way, we can go too far 
and start to look at the Lord's Supper like Christ isn't present at all, when he is in a very real way, which leads to the last question, why should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Why has God put such an importance on this? And the Bible gives many reasons why. I'll summarize them with four R's. So why celebrate the Lord's Supper? First, to remember. We remember. At the core, the Lord's Supper is about remembering. It's 1 Corinthians 11, 24, 25. When we take the bread, we remember the body of Jesus. God became man for us. He suffered and died as man. We remember his body given for us. When we take the cup, we remember the blood of Jesus. Covers over our sins. We remember the price Jesus paid so that we could be forgiven of all our sins. And this is key. The Lord's Supper is not just about imagining something in our minds. It's about remembering a real time in real history. It's not about dreaming. It's about deliberately directing our thoughts back 2,000 years ago to a body given and blood shed on a cross. It's about remembering the past with such vividness that it affects us in the present. The Lord's Supper, we're directing our minds toward the cross. We remember then second, we reflect. We reflect on our sin, which is what is being expressed at the cross, the effects of our sin. So did you catch verses 27 through 32 in 1 Corinthians 11? God's word warns us not to come to the Lord's Supper, the table, in a callous or careless manner. You come humbly as you reflect on your need for Christ. Examine yourself, the Bible says. Lay your heart, your life, your thoughts, your desires, your actions, your entire life before a holy God. Don't skip over this because if you do, if you're not willing to be honest before God, he will expose your sin. This is 1 Corinthians 11. You will, he says, eat and drink judgment on yourself. Paul says you may lose your life because God in love will discipline you. You don't get much stronger language than this. God says, don't take the Lord's Supper lightly. Teenagers, moms, dad, kids, don't take the supper lightly. Mom or dad, don't think, well, I know my child hasn't come to faith in Christ, but I'm just gonna let them take the bread or a drink. Don't do it. They need to see the seriousness of this in you. Teenager, man, woman, I urge you not to sit here and think, let me just go through this religious routine. Do not approach the Lord's Supper like that. Reflect. Honestly, on every area of your life, it's not pure and holy and honoring to God. And here's the beauty. When we reflect on our sin, then we also reflect on God's forgiveness. So remember, you're reflecting on your sin before God who loves you, who has sent his son to pay the price to cover over your sin. So the beauty is that you confess your sin. The Lord brings to the surface areas of sin and disobedience in your life. The picture in the Lord's Supper is Jesus saying, I've covered it. You start thinking about what you've done this last week or you've fallen short and the Lord's Supper, Jesus reminds you, I have covered it. You think about all your struggles with sin and the Lord's Supper, Jesus reminds you, I love you. I forgive you. As far as the east is from the west, I remove those sins. I remember them no more. This is where this meal just comes alive as we feast on Jesus' forgiveness of us and his faithfulness to us, which leads us to the third R, we renew. That leads us to renew. We renew our commitment to Christ so we don't take the Lord's Supper to earn salvation before God. I hope that's clear. 
But when we take the Lord's Supper, we do renew the surrender of our lives to God. When you take that bread and you take that cup, you're saying, yes, I belong to Jesus. Jesus, you're my Savior, you're my Lord, and I want to follow you. This is key. Even the context of what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians, because people were thinking that if they just ate the bread and drank from the cup, that God would be pleased with them, even if their lives didn't reflect commitment to Christ, which misses the whole point. Come before Jesus saying, you are my Lord. We renew, renew our commitment to Christ. We renew our commitment to each other. So the Lord's Supper, the reason, part of the reason why we do this together, not alone, is because it's an expression of our unity together in Christ, which, oh, I wish we had time to dive into this. They were missing in 1 Corinthians 11. What that was happening, they would get together for a meal and the Lord's Supper would be kind of the capstone of that meal. But in that meal, the rich were gorging themselves, even getting drunk. Poor were going without food. And Paul said, what are you doing? You're a body. You come together around the table as a body. There's no room for economic, racial, social barriers between you. At the Lord's Supper, the plane is level and there is no room for preference one over the other. This is why if there are barriers between you and another believer in the church, then you should go and be reconciled to that believer before participating in the Lord's Supper. And you should examine your heart when you come to a worship gathering to say, is there anything hindering my relationship, fellowship with another believer in Christ that I need to address before I worship and participate in this meal. We renew our commitment to Christ, our commitment to each other, and we renew our commitment to his mission. You see 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, it says, the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of Christ's death until he comes. Now, two notes there. One, there's a proclamation element in the Lord's Supper. So we're not just eating and drinking, we're proclaiming, which is what mission is all about. When we eat and drink this cup, we are proclaiming that Jesus has died on the cross, he's risen from the grave, and we're a people bought by him from every nation, tribe, and tongue on earth. And then, second note, there's a time limitation here in the Lord's Supper until he comes. So what does that mean? Well, that leads to the last R that we do in the Lord's Supper. We rejoice. So think about this. We rejoice. One, because Jesus has set us free. And this is key because some of the things that we've seen in Scripture often cause people to perceive the Lord's Supper and even participate in it in a very solemn, serious, contemplative tone. And there's a sense in which it should, must be that way because we don't want to treat it casually. The Lord's Supper beckons us to self-examination, but it doesn't stop there. We don't just think about our sin and then walk out of here engrossed in how horrible our sin is. No, we feast on the forgiveness of God and the freedom he has given us from sin and its power and its penalty in our lives. That then leads us to rise to our feet rejoicing, right? In that sense, this should be the happiest meal. We are celebrating the new life we have in Christ every time we do this. We rejoice because he's set us free, and we rejoice because he's coming back. So come back to this time limitation in the Lord's Supper. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus said back in Luke chapter 22, verse 18, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So follow this. In the Lord's Supper, we're not just looking back. We are also looking forward. Amidst your struggles with sin right now, amidst the sorrow and the pain that you are walking through, amidst the challenges of this world, the Lord's Supper is a reminder to you that one day all those hurts and all those struggles all that sorrow and all that pain will be no more. Jesus is coming back. 
every time we take the Lord's Supper. We remember, follow this, the challenges of this world will one day come to an end. That is reason to rejoice. So, with that set up, I think it's time to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We have drank enough from the fire hydrant. We need to eat. Sometimes you get caught up with how the elements are passed, or whether we go to a table, what the elements are like. Your mind and your heart, you are bothered by what the bread or the cup looks like or how it gets to you, then you have completely missed the point of the Lord's Supper. We're going to take it in different ways in just a minute, but before we do, I want to lead us in prayer. Oh God, even as we celebrate your grace and be honored, we pray now. Help us to take this supper in a worthy manner. In Jesus' name we pray.
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.